Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Jennifer Smith's Brockling is a rare combination, a finance geek and relational extrovert. It's a powerful combination for owners and acquirers of lower middle market enterprises and Main Street businesses who need an experienced and talented advisor handling their deal and want to feel that they truly connect with the person who's guiding them through the process. That is no question valuable. She values collaboration rather than command, believing one can be successful in business and be a good person to others. Jennifer has a gift for making complex problems easy to comprehend and helping parties on both sides of the deal arrive at a mutually beneficial solution. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Corey. So listen, there's so much we can talk about. Buy side, sell side, m and you're a franchisee, you help franchises resell. We're going to get into all of that. But before we do, let's first take you back to when you were a little girl growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I am sure a, a business broker, banker, probably wasn't it. I, I, I certainly didn't know what one of those was at, at that age. How about you? You know, I wanted to work white collar crime for the SBI, Corey. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I knew I loved business and I knew I loved numbers and I knew I loved, you know, people, people getting a fair shake and, and, and being able to do the right thing for people. But I just didn't know what that looked like. And my dad was a cop. Ah, um, okay. There's a connection. Okay. He was the deputy chief of police in Springfield, Missouri, where I grew up. And so I wanted to go bigger and better. And I just decided I'm going to do white collar crime for the FBI. Turns out that's real conducive to a family. So that, that went by the wayside in college. But that was what I wanted to do with my life. I love that. So that's, that's one of the more interesting answers for, uh, you know, for, for you, you know, that I've had on the 200 episodes on the podcast. I love it. I love it. All right. And then thinking back again, what was your first deal of any type, whether it was something small as a young person or early in your career, whatever comes to mind, that was a deal. Yeah. I think what really gave me the bug is I was in banking and I was on the corporate side of the house working for the holding company. And as a part of that, I got to be involved in mergers and acquisitions within the bank. So we would buy things and and look at selling off other branches and things like that. And I think that's where I really got the bug for doing a deal and seeing how we could be creative and and come out with a win-win on on every on every side. I love it. I love it. So tell us a little bit more about your journey to becoming an entrepreneur and running your own firm doing buy side and sell side MA. Yeah. So I was living in St. Louis at the time and I was working in banking. I'd been in banking for about 15 years. And uh, my husband at the time 
is from a little town in Southeast Missouri called Cape Girardeau, which is where we live now. It's about uh, 90 minutes south of St. Louis on the Mississippi River. And we wanted to move back here to start a family. And banking in Southeast Missouri just isn't quite as exciting as banking in St. Louis. (laughs) And so I did that for a couple of years, but really quickly decided that if I was going to kind of write my own ticket, if you will, and do things my way, (laughs) it wasn't going to be as a CFO of a bank. It was going to be as an entrepreneur. So back in 2007, I I left banking and started a consulting firm. And that was about two minutes before the recession hit, if you'll remember that time. Great great time, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. So got out of, got out of the frying pan and into the fire. (laughs) And so I'm not sure whether it was better to not be running a bank in July of 07 or whether it was better to be starting a business, but. Right, right, right. So we launched a consulting firm with one client and got through that recession, which was great. And then in about 2010, our clients started asking us to help them grow through acquisition and to sell them. And there just wasn't that service in Southeast Missouri. It just didn't exist. And folks in St. Louis don't get real excited about driving 90 minutes south to help small town people do that. So that's when we went looking for somebody to partner with and and to learn how to do that. I'd done that in a banking environment, but buying and selling a bank and buying and selling, you know, manufacturing and distribution are are very different. Yeah. So we went looking at at what was out there and I found that there there's a lot of sharks out there in our industry. Yeah. So you gotta be really careful. But I I ended up talking with Roger Murphy of Murphy Business when he was still alive, God rest his soul. And our values aligned and our ethics aligned. And I really like what he had to say. And uh, so that's when we became a part of Murphy Business. So tell us a little bit about Murphy Business, because, you know, you, when you say being a part of, right, it's a franchise model, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So to yep. talk to us a little bit about, obviously nothing confidential, but, you know, what, what, what does that deal look like? Because that's a deal in terms of what, what support they provide and what you do, what the advantage of, the, of that is, and, and, and a little bit more about that arrangement of the company. Yeah, it's really pretty fantastic, and it allows for some pretty serious scalability. So we own the Southeast Missouri franchise for Murphy Business. It's the largest business brokerage firm in North America. So what that means is that we have an exclusive marketing territory but not an exclusive footprint in terms of where we can do deals, uh-huh, right? Got it. Interesting. Only market in Southeast Missouri, but we can be referred anywhere. Yeah. And so Southeast Missouri, again, doesn't have just a whole lot going on all the time and, and not enough to, to really make a living. So we very quickly branched out and we established some relationships with a few national franchisors and national business opportunity models. And that allowed us to get out of our footprint and start supporting folks more on a national basis. And with that comes referrals because attorneys are happy, accountants are happy, they refer you and family members and and things like that. So we very quickly kind of adapted our model and about 80% of what we do is actually not in our market. Only about 20% of our deals are local. But by being a franchise, we have the ability to lean on our back office for a lot. We can lean on them for valuations that that are a little bit outside of our comfort zone, for marketing that we need. We can dial up and dial down on the marketing and and things like that. So it just allows us to be much more scalable than we could if we were an independent office. Great, great. 
So folks, obviously that's, that's one type of deal is right. Is, is the decision to be a franchisee or a franchisor potentially. And now to so talk about uh, on the, on the business brokerage banking side, wh- where do you fit in the market? You know, we've had various people on over the 200 plus episodes that we've been on and some are higher end deals, some are middle market, some are lower middle market. I don't think anybody described themselves as low market until like lower middle market seems at the bottom. And, and I joke, but also frankly, below that, it usually it's not the kind of businesses that can support a Warner bank or so. So where, where do you fall in terms of size? And then is there any industry concentration? Obviously we know there's not a geographical concentration. Mm-hmm. Talk us a little bit about that. Yeah. So really our sweet spot is upper main street and lower middle market. Yeah. So we're really comfortable in the one to 50 million space. And, and we really like, we like being very close to the decision makers. We like decision makers that when they call, they're usually pretty nervous, right? Because this is not just a financial transaction for them. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a legacy. Yeah. It's, you know, they're very concerned about their customers. They're very concerned about their employees. Those are the folks that we like to deal with. So size is a little bit less important to us than the DNA of the folks that we're working with because we care about those things too. And to the extent that we can protect that, that's what gets us out of bed at night, not the, not the payout at the end of the deal, you know? So, so let, let, let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, you've alluded to some of the great parts about working with folks like that, right? You're not dealing with the third level down of management, right? you know, you're dealing with, with, with the owners, with the people who built it, with the people who have created something, right? They want to preserve their legacy. You know, you get all of these intangibles that are, you know, really great. But that also brings some challenges, right? I mean, the two that I see often, and you can feel free to comment on these and add any others, are one, very often those kind of businesses are much more dependent upon that founder or founders, which mm-hmm. make them less saleable or less saleable at the right multiples. And, and two, very often, or sometimes at least, those folks tend to value their businesses, right? Because they talk about the 30 years they have in and, and what they built. And when I, when I try to nicely say to my clients that the buyers don't really care how many 80 hours a week at 30 years or whatever it was, that's not how they value businesses. Sometimes that. So, so talk to me a little bit about whether those things, and I'm, I'm sure they do, like sometimes, but how much those kind of things come up with those kind of businesses and then any of the other challenges before we get to how you get past those and, make, and get deals done. Yeah. So those are definitely challenges and they come up pretty regularly. Even if somebody is second or third generation and they're not active in the day-to-day business, there's still that family legacy, you know, and there's still that, that family guilt that goes along with, you know, getting the, the, the family business out of the family, you know? So I would say it's, it's kind of ever present. Owner involvement is certainly a big problem, but we, we, we tend to have kind of a teacher's heart around here. So we tell folks, look, just call and talk to us a couple of years before you want to sell. Get to us three to five years. Let's have a conversation. We're not going to charge you for it. Just, just call and let's talk about it. Because if we can plant some seeds or give them some strategies or do a little bit of light coaching over the phone to help them make better decisions and stage that business for sale, nine times out of 10, they're going to come back around. They're going to want to do a deal with you. They feel comfortable with you. You're the one that helped them get positioned right in the first place. Yeah. So it's not true exit planning. It's not that robust, but just, you know, helping them think through things through the eyes of a buyer. Yeah. 
And and then if we do a deal in a couple of years for them, they're bigger, better, stronger. We make more money, they do too. And the buyer gets a better company. So so talk to us a little bit about some of those things that, you know, what what are those things in the eye of a buyer that the seller may not realize that you're helping the coach and consult them go through? Yeah. So that owner involvement is probably the the, the biggest kick in the teeth. Right. So if if the if the owner is a linchpin in the business, whether it's on the sales side or the production side or management or whatever, gosh, a buyer's gonna have a really hard time seeing an identical skill set and feeling comfortable stepping in and thinking that the business won't be harmed. Yeah. So that's that's really probably the biggest thing. Getting a good quality infrastructure of employees and a good org chart, getting those policies and procedures cemented so that a buyer knows how to do what you do and and when to do what you do. All of those are important. The marketing is critical and making sure that the company has good curb appeal. There's not a lot of dead weight. There's not a lot of obsolete inventory or or a bunch of equipment that doesn't work. So there's just a lot of staging that needs to be done. We actually offer a free sellability assessment on our website because we want people to go through that sellability assessment and just kind of take a real honest view of their company and we'll assign metrics to that. And at the end, it will tell them whether their business is not sellable, marginally sellable, very sellable. And then we'll send them a little bit of coaching via email to help them make some adjustments. Great. Great. Yeah. And that's, that's such a great service. And, and, and also, you know, you, you mentioned the time frame that's so crucial three to five years in advance, right? Ideally. And of course, that's something we talk with our clients about as well. I mean, the further in advance you are, the more options you have, the more prep you can do to put yourself in a good position, right? How many times do people come to you uh, because, you know, that, well, they want out tomorrow or six months from now or whatever, right? how often does that happen? Yeah, it happens more often than I, than I like for it to. And, you know, the reality is we can deal with that. It's just, you get what you get, you know? Yeah. There's just no time to position or stage or, or to present the business as anything other than what it is. So, and, and the other side of that too is very often there's a lack of planning that's been pretty evident in the business if they come to us in the last six months. And sometimes it's accompanied with a really tough diagnosis or something like that, or, or a you know, physician tells them, hey, look, you got to slow down. Yeah. You got to ditch the business, you know? And so they're, often not calling because they want to and they're excited about the prospect of retirement, they're calling because they have to and that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah, yeah, no, no question. And in terms of uh, industry segments, any, any particular concentrations or? Uh... Yeah, we, we have a bit of a concentration in training companies and we have a bit of a concentration in sign companies, sign manufacturing, sales and distribution companies. But beyond that, we're pretty industry agnostic. So we work in manufacturing, distribution, service. We're pretty heavy in tech right now. So yeah, we're, we're pretty industry agnostic. And I just, I really love sinking my teeth into something that, that we've never worked in before. I think the oddest industry I've ever worked in is I sold privately held cemeteries. Okay. I didn't even know that you could sell or own a cemetery. Okay. But we ended up selling them twice. We sold them once and then sold them again, the same one. So it's just an example of something that, you know, that's kind of fun. Get into an industry that you knew nothing about and learn how it works and learn it well enough to sell it. Interesting, because I know, I mean, I know in the funeral home market, there's been a huge, you know, huge consolidation over the last 25 years or whatever. A lot of roll-ups, a lot of big companies have come in into what was a very fragmented industry. But I didn't know any of the cemetery 
aside. There's a lot of jokes associated with that. I'm sure. And so talk about when you said training companies, is it online training companies or it's more, you know, what type of training? Yeah, it can be in the classroom, hard skills, soft skills, live online training, pre-recorded training. It can be any type of training, but we've, we've got a pretty heavy vertical in that. Got it. All right. So obviously, listen, you have these stronger verticals, but you do all kinds of deals. Similar to us, like we do a lot of financial services and tech, but I, I can give, we've done vitamin companies, building, cleaning, and maintenance, art, art licensing, you know, like you name yep. it. Uh, yep. So I get it. Um, so obviously this may differ, but in general, who are the buyers? Are they, are they strategics? Are they financials? Are they owner operators? What's the mix on those? Yeah. So I would say up to about 3 million on a purchase price. We're looking at owner operators. People are buying a lifestyle and a business and something that they can bring their family into, passed out in the family, things like that. Once we get up around, you know, three to 5 million and up, we're looking more at financial buyers, strategic acquisitions. A lot of peg groups are coming down lower than they've ever come before. So, you know, t- traditionally you had to be a pretty good size deal for a private equity group to be interested, but now they're buying a lot of smaller stuff and, and rolling it up and kind of cobbling together to make a bigger portion of their portfolio. Yeah. So we're dealing with pegs more than we ever have and some family offices that are looking for good diversified investments that get a better rate of return than what they, than what they like in the market. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we, we're talking mainly it's the sell side. And I know for me lately, you know, we do both. I know for me lately, we've been much heavier on the sell side in large part, because especially in financial services, there's been a lot of private equity money that's come in and there are 15, 20 buyers that are really rolling up like crazy and the multiples have been ridiculous. So we've been doing more, we, we have buy side going on as well, but we've been doing heavy proportion of sell side. Lately, you know, what about you? What does the portion look like? And and then I want to, I do want to jump over the buy side as well. Yeah. So historically, we've been almost exclusively sell side yeah. until about the last, I would say, the last three years. Yeah. Just just immediately pre-pandemic, things started shifting a little bit for us into more buy side mandates, and so we're doing probably fifty fifty now wow. buy side sell side with companies wanting to acquire and grow through acquisition in addition to their organic growth, but also people coming out of corporate and they've got a good chunk of money in their retirement. They've got a good chunk of money in their bank account. And they're saying, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of working for the man and I want to start working for myself. I want to live where I want to live and do what I want to do. And, and so we have to go buy, you know, find a company to buy. Yeah, that, you know, that's a fascinating phenomenon. And I found, you know, listen, I'm like 35 years of doing this. And being through many, many cycles, I've found, and, and COVID was an interesting one because I, I've often talked about this, how it really was a K economy, as they, as they say, where there were people who did companies that did really, really well upswing and then some not so much, but, but certainly a lot of people were disrupted and, and even more than just the economic disruption, it's amazing how many folks have reevaluated their lives and their businesses coming out of COVID. But in the past, it's been more economic recessions, whether it was, you know, 2008, 9, 10, another great recession, whether it was the, the combust, whether it was, you know, you name it. I go back, to, I was working during Black Monday back in the, in the 80s. But my point is that that kind of buyer, like the corporate refugee who doesn't want to work for the man anymore and is not going to retire, that's, I've seen that, especially out of these disruptive periods, right? Economic issues, whatever, or anything that has people 
either voluntarily or involuntarily switch. It's interesting how often you, you know, you see, you, that's the time where I see a lot of those kind of buyers. Yeah. And I think people are being, they're, they're kind of tired of being imposed on, you know, they don't like being told where they're, they, where they have to report for work or what they can or can't do when they are at work or whether they have to, you know, do certain things to maintain their employment. They're just sick of it. And so I'm getting a lot of that kind of sentiment where, you know, I want to write my own rule book. And I want to do things my own way. And they know that they're never going to be able to change the corporate environment. So they have to change their own environment. Yeah. So, so, you know, obviously, listen, you mainly what you do is help people get to the closing on those deals, right? But I'm sure you keep in touch with your, with, with your buyers and maybe there's some of them you do all the deals with, whatever. So in terms of how those work out, because I find you know, it's a very interesting buyer, the corporate refugee buyer, right? Because on the one hand, they have usually a wealth of experience and they're often buying somewhere in the, or at least sometimes they're buying within the sphere of, of expertise or knowledge. Sometimes I've seen them go totally out of it as well, but, but, but they at least, even if they don't have industry knowledge, they have leadership experience, management experience, they've dealt with. But at the same time, it's a whole different ballgame being an entrepreneur, right? It's a and listen, I remember, you know, I'm going back 35 years now when I left big law and, you know, in, in New York and hung out my shingle, you know, I was looking behind me, where are all those people that like, I didn't even realize what some, I realized what many of those people did for me. And then, and then I didn't even realize, oh yeah, wait a second, we're on a paper on the copy machine. I guess I got to, I guess I got to do something. How do I go into the paper? Right. And, uh, and by the way, back, back then it wasn't easy, right? I have to go literally go out to Staples. Yeah. So, but my point is that it is an adjustment. So what have, what have you seen in terms of success rates, in terms of challenges of let's just stick with that corporate refugee kind of buyer and becoming the entrepreneur? Yeah, I think at least from what I'm hearing from them, some of them have tried to do a startup thinking, gosh, how hard could it be? Yeah. Right. And, and they realize the hard way that a startup is, is a whole lot more difficult than it sounds. <laughs> and, you know, and it takes a while before you can pay yourself when you don't have any cash flow or any customers or, or whatever. So usually by the time they find us, they've, they've, they're a little bit bumped and bruised, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they realize that, gosh, you know, maybe this is a little bit harder than they thought. And, uh, and the prospect of buying cash flow and, buying something that is already making money and they can pay themselves on day one, that, that just looks like nirvana to them, yeah. you know? Yeah. So as long as they've got the capital or they can get banked or both, you know, or we can leverage retirement funds through a Rob's program or something like that, generally we can get the job done for them. Yeah, love that, love that. And listen, I think that's, that's something that out of this, you know, COVID disruption and everything, I, you know, I think we have a while to go where people are, you know, I still know so many people who are still reevaluating, you know, looking at things differently. So I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of bar continues for, you know, the next that's, that's great. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. What do you see in overall? So, so obviously, I mean, for our listeners and viewers, 
We're recording this in November, shortly, a few days before Thanksgiving. It won't air for a couple of months, but I always like to place it when I ask these kind of questions about what we're seeing in the market, because by the time it airs, maybe, you know, there's a, something that's totally changed things. But it's uh, good, Corey, because then we'll both look stupid. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. Listen, it, it's hard enough to talk about what we're seeing and what we even think will happen in the future, you know, based upon what we see now. But to, but to have it come out two months after whatever's happened, hopefully something great as opposed to something horrible. Right. But any case, so um, listen, I don't even have to ask what the last 10 years have been like for you because I know what's happened in the market, right? And, and anybody who's, who's really good at what they do, which, I, which I'm sure you are, and based upon your you know, background in history and success track, you know, it's been a boom time for us, right? You know, when we, money in the space, deal, one the deals, good valuations, all that kind of stuff. Well, obviously we, we all know uh, in more recent times over the last year or so, whatever it's been, you know, we've got some headwinds. The stock market more shaky, interest rates higher, inflation higher. So, and, and it, my, my sense in, in what we do and in speaking to various people is it's affecting different sectors very, very differently. Some, some less, a lot less so, some more so. So what are you seeing? I'm sure there's some variation, but what are you seeing generally in terms of the impact so far? on either deal flow, valuations, structure, buyer or seller psychology of some of these headwinds that we, we, we've seen recently. Yeah, yeah. That, that one actually, that question really hits home for me. We're working on a deal that could have been closed in about a 60-day period and we're on month nine. Wow. And it's just time kills all deals, right? Yeah. And this one's not dead yet, but it's kind of on life support. And, uh, and it's a combination of all the things you just mentioned, you know, the, uh, the interest rates have gone through the roof in that a nine month period. The buyers are getting concerned. The valuation has come down. Cost of goods has gone up. Labor force is more tight, you know, and, and things are just, the dynamics are shifting out from under the deal. Yeah. Yeah. So the bankers are coming back and saying, gosh, you know, sorry, if you'd closed on this months and months ago, it wouldn't have been a problem, but, you know, everybody waited so long and. Part of it was the buyer and part of it was the seller and part of it was the landlord and part of it was the banker. And, you know, you can blame whoever you want, but, you know, I, I think the name of the game is going to be to anticipate what's coming, build that into the value to the, to the best of your knowledge and close deals fast, you know, before things shift. Because the more things shift, the more you need to go back to the table, renegotiate, put in some creative seller financing or or cover gaps or earnouts or whatever. Yep. And, and then you essentially have to do your job twice. You, renego you negotiate it once and then you got to renegotiate it a second time and, and nobody wants to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, it, and it's interesting because there's always a, in changing times, there's always an adjustment period, right? But I've mentioned this in a couple of, of, of the episodes recently. And I keep actually, because it's kind of intuitive for a lot of people and I want people to understand it. Like when, when interest rates started going up, right, which I did, I, I, I was wanting, because listen, I've been through various interest rate environments over my 35 years. And I had this sense that, and I did some research and I found what I thought was the case and that there's actually no correlation between interest rates and deal volumes. Mm -hmm. right? And I often talk about the, there's always deals to be done even in bad economies. In fact, some of the best deals are done, right, in bad economies. But the challenging times is always is always in that transition period, right? Until the market sort of resets 
because if cost of capital is going to go up, okay, deals are going to be underwritten differently. And, you know, and the, but it's sort of like, and for people who are less familiar, you can think about it, think about it in like the residential real estate market, right? What happens when things turn is you, you have this period of time where the, where the sellers still have the home prices that they thought they were going to get. And other markets dropped and it takes a while for them to accept the fact that they're not going to get this. They have to get this. So sales slow down because buyers aren't going to pay those numbers anymore. And you sellers are going to get realistic and they got to adjust to the fact that interest rates are up. Whatever. The same thing happens in the, in the, in the, in the deal market. And then at some point the expectations reset and the deals re-underwrite, right? And then deal flows starts again, no matter what the economic factors are, at least that's been my, my experience. So. I see you nodding your head. You know. Yeah, everything you just said, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think you see a little bit of a thinning of the herd in a time period yeah. like this too. Yeah. You know, some of the folks that just aren't, they just, they're just not nimble enough to handle things on the fly or they can't handle the emotional component yes. of, of the sellers and having to reset those expectations because, you know, our job isn't done on a spreadsheet. Our job is done with people. And so- if we can't manage those processes and those expectations and have those hard conversations and, and say, hey, look, here's what I'm seeing coming down the pike. You, you need to be prepared for this. And, you know, they, they watch the news. They know that stuff's going on. They just don't know how it necessarily applies to them and their deal. Right. Right. But the more we can be a, a good coach and a good confidant and consultant to our client, in addition to doing their deal for them, I think that you know, the, the folks that kind of take the people route as opposed to the deal route all the time will probably survive that thinning of the herd. And if you're just focused on metrics and numbers and spreadsheets and data, I, you know, I just don't think that people want that, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about so that people, that emotional component, because even, even in good times, I'm not just in bad times, right? When you're dealing with I'm not saying there's no emotion whatsoever in bigger deals, but the truth is, you know, when you're dealing with much bigger deals and there's more professional management, they've been there, done that, you know, there's less emotion involved often, right? First of all, sometimes you're dealing with different layers of management or you're dealing with more sophisticated players, which is very different than when you're dealing with somebody, especially on the sell side where, you know, it's been their baby, right? Or, or, or frankly, on the buy side would be talking about the corporate refugees where that's a big decision for them. It's a life change, right? So talk to us about what some people would, do, would, would, would term the soft skills, which I had never loved that term because I don't think it's soft at all. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, talk to us about that aspect of what you do, because again, a lot of people look at a broker or a banker and, and, they, and they automatically think, okay, you're going to value the company, you're going to package them, you're going to run the spreadsheets, you're going to you know, run the process. And they think about all that more analytical side of, of things. But you specifically in your bio make it a point, right? It's it's one of you know it's part of your value proposition. So talk us a little bit more about that people side of it, that emotional side of it. Yeah. So we kind of feel like the analytical skills are the price of entry, right? And and you just got to have them. You've got to have a good background on legal and accounting and finance and contracts and and negotiations and all of that stuff. And if you if you're not good at those things, you probably don't need to be in this space. But at the end of the day, it's people that own companies and it's people that buy companies, yeah. right? And for the most part, I, you know, I don't know a whole lot of people and, and maybe because I have deliberately stayed in the space where people care 
right. you know, and it, and it's not just the almighty earnings per share. They actually, you know, care about what they produce and who they produce it for and who punches the clock every day and all of that. Um, but they want to know that the person that is handling their transaction and their deal cares about the same things they care about. And when they go find them a buyer, they're not going to find this buyer that's a complete mismatch, that's going to give their employees whiplash, going to slash and burn the company, and where, you know, they're going to walk through their hometown and be embarrassed to run into somebody and say, oh, you sold to that guy? You know, nobody wants that, right? They want to they hold their head high and feel good about the deal that they just did. And, and they want to sell to somebody who can take the business to the next level and say, Wow, you know, I started it, but look what they did with it. Yep. And I think it's just an innate human need for people. And so if, you know, if we never lose track of the fact that we're dealing with people selling their company to other people, that that's just a that's a dynamic I think that's that's kind of underserved in what we do. And it's kind of why we just deliberately stay under about 50 million. It's not about the deal size. It's about the people and who we get to connect with. Yeah, Because, you know, I don't get excited about, I mean, I'm pretty good on a spreadsheet, but I don't get excited to get out of bed and work on a spreadsheet. I get excited about coming in and changing people's lives and helping them transition into the next phase of their life. Love so, it. yeah, the other stuff is just, you know, you got to have it. It's got to be there. But, but the people side is, I think, the big differentiator, at least for us. You know, when you, when you said, you know, that, that conversation about, you know, I started to look where they took it, right? That pride. And it reminded me actually of, and I have, I'll probably apologize to the, to the listeners and viewers that I don't have it handy because I wasn't planning on mentioning it, but somewhere in the first hundred episodes, right? In fact, it might've even been in the first 50 episodes. I don't remember. It was back actually before the podcast got rebranded as Deal Quest. It was called Fueling Deals. I did a, a great interview with Brian Smith, who was the founder of Uggs. Oh. Okay. And Brian's got a, an, so look for that episode, folks, because Brian's got this amazing story of coming over right from Australia. And like he's, he literally was the visionary, the, the founder of Uggs. Like who would think like surfer dudes, you know, and, and, and women would be wearing these, right? And, and, and he's got a great story about how he built this thing from nothing, all the mistakes that he made, how he really started a trend. And then, of course, he sold the company and then, and then the buyer took it. I, I mean, right, it's become ubiquitous. But none of that would have happened without Brian Smith's initial journey. So uh, when you mentioned that, uh, I just happened to think back to that episode several years ago. It's definitely worth listening. He's got a great story. And by the way, he's also a, a speaker. He, he, he talks about this stuff. So he's a great guy to come into your events and whatever. I'll give him a plug here because it's, it's such a great entrepreneurial story where others have something up. Okay, so as we come towards the close, Anything else that you're, whether it's what you're seeing in the marketplace, do's and don'ts, mistakes people make, what else comes to mind that we haven't talked about that's standing out for you right now, maybe? Yeah, I would just say, you know, I would encourage anybody that's thinking about buying or selling, just start having those conversations early. You know, you don't have to engage an attorney. You don't have to engage an accountant and a financial planner and a broker immediately and, you know, put them on the clock. But I would start looking for a really good transaction attorney, start looking for a CPA who doesn't just file tax returns that, that understands the strategic side of, of the tax implications of a deal. Start looking for a good financial planner because you're going to get a windfall and, and you need to understand, you know, you don't want to outlive your money, number one. And, and number two, you need to know what you're going to do with it. 
Yep. And then, you know, reach out to somebody like us and have a conversation about how you can position your company because we want to sell the company when it's ready to be sold, not necessarily when the owner's ready to sell. And so you may decide that you're ready to retire and the company's not ready or the company may be ready now and we need to pull the trigger a little bit sooner. So just start having those conversations and and finding your team early. And like I said, you don't have to put them on the clock or anything, but just start identifying those folks and having those conversations early because, you know, business owners are really great at doing what they do. And most of the time we couldn't run their company. You know, they're not stupid. They're brilliant people. Yes. Um, but that's what they do. And this is what we do. Yes. So get a team of specialists and, and start having those conversations early. Love it. Love it. Yeah. If people want to find out more about, you know, you and, and the business and the services you offered, what's the best place to go? Yeah. Our website is murphybusinessofcapecape.com. And our phone number is 573-335-1885. And if, when you call here, you'll reach out to our project manager, Kate Roth. She's been with me for 12 years and knows everything I don't. And, and then we have another broker here in the office, Melanie Smolin, and any of us would be happy to talk with you. Love it. And folks, you know, if you're driving or whatever, all that'll be in the show notes. You can you can check it out. So Jennifer, my final uh, question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people from oppression around the world to why I've been an entrepreneur and I've been out of loss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Wow, that is such a great question. Freedom means to me that I can choose to make decisions that I want to make and I'm going to bear the fruit of that decision and I'm going to bear the consequences of that decision. Right. But it's my decision to make. Love. Right. And, uh, and so nobody's going to tell us to do what, to, what we have to do. We just, we get to write our own ticket, good or bad, right? I love that. And, and to me, that's one of the ways I describe entrepreneurship, right? I say, you know, it's everybody glad, listen, here's the good news and the bad news, right? And so we, we have a lot of folks that come out of the big wirehouses, a meeting like Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, who we help leave there and start their own investment advisory firms. And they're always, one of the things they're running from is compliance, which is a lot of risk management, right? Like you can't do this. No, you can't do that. You got to get better proof out here, right? And this reason in that business model to have that level of oversight but they want to get away with it. And I always say to them, listen, there's, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that you get to make your own risk management decisions. The bad news is you're making your own risk management decisions. So right. when they turn out, you know, you're responsible for them either way. It's all yours. <laughs> it's all yours. Exactly. So, you know, that freedom of being all yours could be into it. You know, I, I listen, I'm, I, I'm a big believer in, yeah, take that freedom and run with it. But, but yeah, there are, I love the way you described it. Because, you know, what that freedom means, this responsibility that comes with that freedom. Absolutely. Yeah, love it. Jennifer, thank you so much for being a fantastic guest on the DealQuest podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Corey. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom Calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. 
you will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.